0: If you are a child here between the ages of kindergarten and first grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, you can find that in the back of the sanctuary in the foyer. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is on page 178 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using a Pew Bible. So we get back into our study through Deuteronomy this year. Today we're looking at chapter 6. Page 178. Let me read chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them them as symbols to your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And His anger will burn against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees He has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord, our God, has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So I got a great new app for my iPad. I'm sure you're excited to hear that. Um, it's really cool. I don't know if you know. Uh, Google Google has Gmail, free email, but Google also has an online calendar. So basically, you can you can have your calendar online, and you can go on any computer anywhere, log on to Google, and and do your calendar stuff. Well, I have this iPad app where I can do my calendar on my iPad, and then it like beams it to Google, and 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 the two of them talk to each other. I mean, let heaven and nature sing. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> It really has helped my life, though, because, frankly, I I just can't remember all the things that I have to do in my life. I I just find it's so hard to remember all of my appointments, all of my kids' scheduled things, all my doctor's appointments, haircuts, um, you know, all these things I have to do. And it's like you have to just know how to remember all this data. You know, in in ancient times, you had other survival skills. You know, you had to know how to build a fire. You had to know how to, like, kill an animal. You don't know how to skin it and turn it into clothes. I mean, th- these are basic survival skills. In the modern world, you have basic survival skills, like how to use technology to manage information, because you just can't remember all the, the passwords and the logins and the dates and the contacts. You know, something else, though, that's really hard to remember in the modern world, I just find it really hard to remember God. It, it's like... I can't keep him in front of me, it seems, even though he's there. I, I'm not conscious of him because there's so much other stuff that just seems to distract me and pull me away. We are those who claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's sort of evangelical talk for what it means to be a Christian. But, but how is it that if I have a personal relationship with Jesus that it's possible to go days or sometimes weeks without ever really connecting with that personal relationship with Jesus, even cracking his word to hear what he has to say to me, or or just slowing down even for like ten minutes in my schedule. Maybe I need to put it in my Google schedule. But just stopping for ten minutes to, to just think about the Lord and what he's done for me to, to dwell in that relationship. Where, where do I download the app that helps me remember God? That seems to be what I need. Well, this morning, as we come to Deuteronomy chapter six, continuing to study through Deuteronomy, boy, there's a lot here in chapter six, huh, as I read that, just so much you could talk about. But I want to just think about sort of one major theme that seems to be the dominant theme coming out of this passage, which is the the call that is that Moses had on Israel to basically remember God. Don't forget about him. God's given you His word. He's given you his presence. Don't forget it, don't don't get distracted, don't lose sight of it and so so that seems to be the, the major thing that he's telling us here in deuteronomy and man that's a message for us too. We as modern people as Christians more than ever need to be reminded to remember the Lord and to remember his word and all the things that could distract us. Speaking of remembering, do you remember where we are even in deuteronomy? I mean it was like three weeks ago we were studying this before Christmas. Uh, Basically, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, just going back one chapter, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he represents to them the Ten Commandments. So they're about to enter into the Promised Land and take the land of Cana. And before they do, he gives them the Ten Commandments again. And then basically from chapter 6 to chapter 11 is an extended sermon by Moses where he's just kind of urging them to keep the Ten Commandments. All right, this is God's law Now, you know, do it, (laughs) keep it, honor it. You know, look at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3, for instance, of chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may um, increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of our fathers, promised you. Look, God's given you His law. Now, hear it, keep it. Do it. Obey it. Don't lose sight of His law. And and notice what will happen. If you keep His law, you will get to live in the promised land a long time. If you do not keep His law, we see later, He will eject you from the promised land. So, this is the basic Old Testament covenant that God made with Israel God rescued them from Egypt, He gave them His laws. And he said, if you keep the laws, you will stay under my blessing in the promised land. If you break my law, you will be ejected from the promised land and, and come underneath my judgment. And so there it is. And what is that law again? Well, it's the Ten Commandments, but it's even, you can even summarize it more than the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here's the law Israel was supposed to keep. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These two verses are some of the most important verses in Deuteronomy, some of the most well-known, some of the most famous. Uh, in fact, there's a name for this verse. You don't even know the, the Hebrew name, that what, what Jewish, uh, our Jewish friends would call this. They call it the Shema. This is the basic Jewish confession. If, if the basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord, the basic Jewish confession is, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one. And every good Jewish child is taught this. It's, it's like ABCs of the faith. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? What's the be- You know, the biggest commandment. You got to get this one right before all the others. And what did Jesus do? Like a good Jewish kid, he went straight to Deuteronomy six five. He said, "The greatest commandment is this: love God with everything you got, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." And uh, this is just a huge. These are two huge verses. In fact, there's you could do a whole sermon on these two verses. In fact, we're going to do a whole sermon on these two verses next Sunday. So. Next Sunday we're going to study this, so I don't want to talk at length about those two verses right now, except to say this: It seems to me that loving God is a succinct summary of the heart of biblical religion. Well, you know what is biblical religion all about? At the core, it's about loving God. I mean, if you get loving God right, then everything else will seem to flow out of that. It's such a simple thing. Israel, look, there's only one God. So here's your job. Love him. And the love you should have for him is an all-consuming love of your whole person. It's not just sort of a a warm, fuzzy, emotional thing. When when we're called to love God, it's not the kind of love that that a teenage girl has for Justin Bieber. It's not that kind of love. It's it's the kind of love that a bride has for her groom as they're taking their vows. And she looks into his eyes and says, Tell death, do us part. It's committed love. And so this is the kind of love that God calls Israel to have for him and that God has for Israel is that committed love that expresses itself in obedience to his commandments. You know, such a simple thing. It's like Moses is like, look, I'll give you the whole law, but you know what? I'll summarize the law for you. Ten commandments. And if that's too complex, let's summarize it further. Love God. All right? It's so simple. It's so simple. So why do I struggle to remember it? You know, it's so simple. And yet it's so hard to remember God. It's so hard to remember to love God. My heart has sort of like a spiritual memory deficiency. There seems to be holes in my heart. My hard drive is leaking. I don't know what the right metaphor is, but I just can't love him. my, My affections, my mind and my heart and my strength seem to be diverted to other things rather than to God. And so Moses seems to understand this. He seems to understand that as sinful human beings, we forget. We forget the basic, simple things, that there's a God that we're supposed to love with our whole being, that that's the law. And so the rest of chapter 6, from verses 6 down to verse 25, is kind of an extended exhortation to remember, to put it in a word, to not forget God, to not forget His law. And as I look at verses 6 to 25, it seems to me that there are at least three uh, ways in which Moses is uh, exhorting Israel to remember God and to remember to love him, to remember to keep his word. And I think we can really learn from this as uh, New Covenant Christians that we need to be reminded to, to remember God and not forget about him as well. And so let's look at the three things that Moses tells Israel to do. The first one is in verses 6 to 9. And I guess I would summarize verses 6 to 9 this way that God commands or Moses commands the Israelites to saturate their lives with the word of God. Saturate your lives with the word of God. Again, verse 6, these commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Just put God's Word everywhere in your life. The image I had in my mind as I was thinking about this was like a surround sound theater system at home. I don't know if any of you have a home theater system. Where, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough really to have the flat screen TV, now is it, guys? Uh, the men here will agree with me that the flat screen TV is just the first step. You need surround sound. And so, you, you know, in surround sound you have a central speaker, and then you have to have side speakers. So you got to figure out where you're sitting, and there's a geometry to all this. And you put a speaker over here, the speaker over there. Then you got to have your rear speakers and so you've got to figure out, you know, where the sound field is. And so you put, you know, you mount a speaker on the wall here and on the wall there. And the idea is there's kind of a sweet spot in the room where you sit where all the sound perfectly hits you. And so that so that when you're watching a movie, it can feel like you're surrounded by the sound of the experience. Um, and so it seems to me that's kind of what Moses is saying, you might say, is you need God's word in surround sound in your life. You need to find ways to structure your life so that in all the different places of your life, you're going to encounter His Word. You know, starting with verse 6, having it on your heart. You, you need to have it inside of you. These commandments I give you today be upon your hearts. This is sort of like your front and center speaker. Make sure you're taking in God's Word. Uh, and so, you know, how do you remember God? Number one, the ABCs, 101 of Christianity. We have to read His Word. I mean, there's no other way around it. How can we have God's Word in our hearts? Or as Paul says in Colossians, how can we let God's Word dwell in us richly if we don't read it? And so a very basic ABC of Christianity, the first thing you do when you're a Christian is you start learning what it's like to read God's Word. Um, Here's a random quote of the morning. This is our own John Quincy Adams said, I say to you, search the scriptures. The Bible is the book of all others to be read at all ages and in all conditions of human life, not to be read once or twice or thrice through and then laid aside, but to be read in small portions of one or two chapters every day and never to be intermitted unless by some overruling necessity. I love that. You never really finish reading the Bible as a Christian, right? As a Christian, you never be like, you know, I'm done. I got it. I read it. Yeah, read that. Done with that. I'm going to go on to the next book. I mean, as a Christian, you should always just... I'm always reading the Bible. You finish it yet? Not yet. Because I still need it to go inside of me more. There's still more to understand. It's a living Word that you never really master, but you pray that it will continually master you. And so that's how God's Word is. We need to keep reading it and... And so, so read the Bible. And, and you say, well, how do I do it? Is there a particular reading plan I should use? Not really. I mean, there's so many plans out there. There's read through the Bible in a year, read a chapter a day. You know, I don't really care. Just read something. Even if it's just five or ten minutes, learn how to start reading the Bible on a regular basis in some small way. Join a Bible study, whatever it takes. But somehow build it into the rhythms of your daily life. If I never read the Bible, or if I go long periods without reading the Bible, why should I feel surprised if God seems distant and disconnected to me? Because the primary way that God reveals Himself to Christians today is how? Through His Word. And so if I don't read His Word and I feel like I can't remember God, I shouldn't be surprised at that turn of events. Uh, We need to read His Word. We need to memorize His Word. You're like, memorize? I can't memorize anything. My memory is shot. I I can't even remember my passwords. I I have all the same passwords for every computer thing I do because I can't remember all the passwords. I I can barely remember my own phone number. I don't even know what my cell phone number is. So you want me to memorize the Bible? No, no, just memorize a little scripture. Maybe start with this one right here. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. I mean, that's easy. Maybe make that your goal this month is just to memorize one scripture. It's amazing when you memorize the Bible or portions of the Bible or even one little verse and you tuck that away in your heart how the Holy Spirit will at weird times in your life, when you least expect it but most need it, the Holy Spirit will like access that file out of the filing cabinet and suddenly bring it into your mind. And he'll just speak to you. Like the verse will come out of some, well, not of nowhere. It will come out of your heart where you stored it. And God will draw upon those things. And he uses those verses we've heard. Sometimes 20 years earlier as a little kid, some scripture will come to mind that maybe you heard or memorized for a a church class. And so read. There's no substitute for this. This is basic Christian practice. We need to be people who read the Bible. And if you can't, even try to memorize a little bit of it so that it goes into our hearts. But it's more than that. It, the Bible should be, and in, in God's Word should be just something we talk about. Make it so that it's totally normal to talk about God's Word in your life. Just let it be normal. Let it be cool and accepted. We talk about God's Word. You know, verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up when you go out to church to, after lunch or church after church today go to lunch you know talk about the the word that you study even for 5 minutes just make it normal to talk about god's word if you have kids you know there's a great if you saw here in chapter 6 there's a great emphasis here on the parents responsibility to pass the word on and to pass the knowledge of god along to their children so if you have children or even grandchildren or nephews and nieces you're part of this uh plan of god to to pass His Word on to the next generation. I love that verse 7. Impress them on your children. All right? That word means to repeat over and over. You know, lecture. We're good at that as parents. Lecture your children. Or I I would use, you know, if if I were to give sort of a freer modern translation, I would say drill it into them. You know, just repeat it over and over. Keep turning the screw of Scripture deeper into their little minds of mush while they're still young enough to remember things. You know? (laughs) Well, they remember everything. And, you know, so great. Their, their minds are, their memories are active. They're still young. So drill, screw the Word of God into them. Make it normal to talk about the Bible with your kids. Study the Bible with your kids. You say, I can't study the Bible with my kids. I barely know the Bible. Well, neither do they. So there you go. <laughs> so you're right where they are. It's perfect. They won't feel threatened. You can You can start... You know, what do I do? There's so many things you could do. You could read a Bible passage. There's Bible story books. There's so many resources today. The problem of being a Christian in America is not resources for studying the Bible. It's just that we're too busy to do it. That's the problem. The problem isn't like some countries where they don't have any resources. We have too many resources. We're just so busy, we never do it. That's the problem. Make it normal to talk about the Bible with your with your family and your friends. If If some discussion comes up about politics or about... Things going on in life or, or if uh, um, you know, bring the Bible into it. Say, hey, well, what does God's word have to say about this whole situation? Oh, I never thought about that. You know, when you're listening to the debate on Fox News, who was the guy who brought the Bible into it? Oh, yeah, he wasn't there. Okay, what would God's word say to that situation? Let's think about that. Or or if you do have children again and you're disciplining them, don't just do the old, you know, stop it. Why? Because I said, you know, don't go deeper. Hey, you need to stop doing that. You know why you need to stop doing that? No. You know, well, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think the Bible says about that? I don't know. Think about it. Well, maybe it says this, right? And, you know, it's it's a pain, but just have a conversation and, and make it normal, whether you're driving in the car or wherever, to have God's Word be a topic of discussion so that it's just part of, the culture of your personal life seems to be what we're talking about here. Not only that, we need to see God's Word. You know, Verses 8 and 9, tie it to symbols on your hands, bind it to your forehead, right on the door frames of your houses. You're probably aware that uh, modern Orthodox Jewish families, in, in some cases, practice this very literally. Maybe you've heard of phylacteries. Uh, Orthodox Jews will sometimes pray with phylacteries. Phylacteries are are literally bound scriptures. It's a little box with a head. Band and they strap it to their forehead when they read and they uh, study God's Word. And then they'll take another one, a little box with scriptures in it, put it on their hands and strap it around their arm, and they'll say certain blessings and and recite scriptures as they strap this thing to their arm. And then they pray literally with God's Word on their forehead and on their hands. Uh, Or how about verse uh, 9? Write it on the door frames of your houses. Have you ever perhaps been to a Jewish house and seen a mezuzah on the outside of the door? It's a little tube nailed to the door and inside the tube is scripture rolled up and literally words god is god's word is put on the door frame of the house Uh, now it's debatable whether or not when moses spoke this that was what he intended them to do but it is interesting as an idea isn't it surrounding yourself so that you see god's word and you're reminded of god's word maybe we can find our own little ways to do that maybe in your house like you know in the kitchen have Scripture. There's all kinds of calligraphy scripture that's done. You could buy one and put it in your bedroom or something. Just scripture that you want to remember. You know, people see that it sinks in. You notice it. Maybe, maybe uh, I've seen Christians, you know, write down scripture verses they're trying to remember or just think about, and they put it on a three by five card and stick it to the fridge or it's on the bathroom mirror. Maybe you need scripture that you can tape into your locker at school, or perhaps. Uh, there's a scripture that's really important to you, put it on your desk at work. You know, maybe that's weird, maybe people freak out, who cares? You're trying to surround your life with God's word so that wherever you go, you see it. Perhaps, uh, you know, in your car, have a CD or two, along with the other CDs, have a CD or two with just music that's scripture-soaked so that you can pop that in when you feel like, man, I'm losing my focus here. Just listen to God's word being sung and, and, and talked about in song. But just find ways to build God's Word into your life so that it's around you 360 degrees because we forget, don't we? I need to remember God's Word. And if I want to remember God, I have to remember His Word because that's how God primarily, above all else, communicates His presence and His reality to us is through the conduit of His Word. And So let's not forget our Lord, even as modern people. Let us find ways to saturate our lives with his word. Then here's the second one. Here's the second way we remember God. It's in verses 10 to 12, and it's this. Be vigilant against good gifts from God that distract our affections and our thinking away from God. Be vigilant against earthly things that God gives us, which are good, but... That can become distractions and can siphon our affections and our attentions away from God to those things. Again, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore uh, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Israel first heard this sermon, they were in for a massive life change. They were about to go from being a nomadic people in the desert to a settled city-dwelling people. And here's the cool thing about the land of Cana. It was in move-in condition. It was not a fixer-upper. They were going to go in, and there's going to be a whole built city. You know, with, with everything working. And then when they wanted a house, they didn't have to build a house. It was like, okay, the Canaanites used to live here. God's driven them out. And so now, you know, take a house. And they go in the house, and there's the fridge. There's food in the fridge. You know, there's, you know, there's a TV with a surround sound already in place. It's like, wow, I didn't have to do any of this. It's just all right here. I just had to come in and live here. And, and boy, I've got, got to go out in my vineyard. Look at the vineyard's already planted. There's already grapes on it. Wow, this is great. All the work's been done. I just move right in and take it. And it's a gift from God. Look at the blessings you're about to receive, Israel. But be careful, because you're going to get distracted by the blessings. They're from God, but I know you. (laughs) You're sinful people like I am, and we get distracted even by the good blessings that God gives us. And if this was true for people living in the Bronze Age, how about those of us living in the modern world, you know, where iPads are normal? Like, wow, they couldn't imagine the earthly treasures and the earthly pleasures and the diversions and the pastimes and the hobbies and the entertainments and the vacations and the magazines and all the stuff that we have. I mean, it, it, it's a completely different world. It would be like heaven to them compared to the the technology and the blessings we have, how much more so do we have to guard our hearts to make sure that as we receive these blessings in the modern world, that that our gifts from God, that that we keep them in the proper place and we keep God front and center in our hearts and our minds. Is there something in your life that has distracted your satisfaction away so that you're satisfied in it rather than satisfied in the Lord? Or maybe a different question for you. Are you... Aware of your own soul such that you could tick off three, four, five things and say, you know, these are the top things that I know could distract me from God. I just know me and I know these are my my soft spots. These are things in my life that if I'm not careful could become the things that I look to for satisfaction rather than finding my satisfaction in Jesus Christ himself. You know, the Puritans called those things bosom sins. They're the sins that are particularly close to my heart and my bosom. We all have different ones. But do, you know, uh, as Socrates said, know thyself. Do you know yourself? Do you know those things that are those weak spots? And so let's be a people who remember God. Let us, first of all, surround our lives with Scripture and His Word. Let it be normal. Let it be a part of what we take in. You know, what what is it perhaps that God is calling you in your own life to do? and in your own family and household to make Scripture more around you, more saturated. Number two, let's beware that good things that God gives us don't distract us from loving Him above all else. And are you aware, and am I aware, of the things in our own lives that have that tendency for us? And are those things getting in the way? Do we need to do some pruning? And then here's the third and last one. It's down in verse 20. The last one is, keep telling the story of God's redemption let's keep telling each other the story of what God has done for us again verse 20 in the future when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations decrees and laws of the Lord our God has commanded you what do you do? You tell him the story we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that He promised on oath to our forefathers. So let's keep telling that story. Let's not forget what God has done for us. Israel, you used to be slaves in Egypt. God rescued you. He brought plagues upon Pharaoh. Do you remember that? Israel, I mean, there was that plague of the firstborn where God killed all the firstborn in Egypt except for those who were in the the Israelite households who sacrificed the firstborn lamb, the Passover lamb, and put the blood on the doorposts of the house. And that night during Passover, the angel of death passed over their houses, and and he he sent his curse upon the, the Egyptian houses. And then after that, I brought you through the Red Sea. And then you got the Ten Commandments. And then you went into the Promised Land. Let's keep telling that story, Israel. And again, if you're familiar at all with um, Jewish uh, faith and practice today, you'll know that that this idea of retelling the story to children has even been sort of uh, put in liturgical form in the Passover Seder. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a Jewish Passover Seder, sat with a Jewish family. Maybe you've been a part of a recreation of a Jewish Passover Seder. But it's a very ritualized kind of thing. All the food they eat on the plate symbolizes different aspects of the story. Uh, and in fact, there, there's a, a liturgy that's read during the Passover Seder where a child or a young person at the meal stands up and, and they take this liturgy. It's called the Haggadah. They take the Haggadah and the little child asks the question, Father, how is tonight different from all other nights? And then the father goes and tells the story and, and has all these, foo- all these different foods on the plate that describe different parts of the story. These are the bitter herbs, you know, that remind us of the bitter suffering. And this is the lamb shank that reminds us of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And, and so every year the story is retold, it, it's, they're reminded of what God has done to redeem them. My friends, if Israel had a story of redemption to tell over and over, how much more do we have a greater story of redemption to tell over and over? We have a story that needs to be told every day. Because Israel was rescued from physical slavery in egypt but we've been rescued from the slavery to our sins we've been rescued from hell we've been rescued from pharaoh satan you know israel was rescued through the sacrifice of the passover lamb and the shedding of that blood we have been rescued through the blood of jesus christ our passover lamb who was sacrificed on passover intentionally that Jesus is the one whose blood is over our lives so that when the great day of judgment comes, God's judgment will pass over us and we'll be saved. Israel experienced an amazing miracle. They were brought through the Red Sea. They went in one side and they came out the other. But we have a greater miracle. Jesus Christ has entered the grave and he has come out the other side alive. Israel received God's Ten Commandments from heaven on two tablets of stone. We have received God's commandments that the Holy Spirit has taken and put in our hearts by giving us rebirth, by making us born again and putting his law in our hearts. Israel was brought to the promised land of Cana in Palestine. But but we know that that promised land given to Israel was just a historic prefigurement of what God really wants to give us, which is the new heavens and the new earth the new Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so in every way, the gospel story that we have to tell is so much greater. And, and Israel's story was merely a prefigurement of the gospel story. So that now everybody, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, through faith in Jesus can be heirs of this new story of redemption. And so we have to keep telling it to each other. We have to keep rehearsing the gospel story because like God and like loving God, the gospel is something that we're very prone to forget. I don't know why. Maybe that's a whole other sermon, but we forget the gospel. It's so simple. Jesus Christ died for me to save me from my sins. What a simple message! And yet, I it just seems to kind of go away. And I'm like, well, you know, that's yeah, that's nice, but I got other things that are more important that I need to focus on. And and it changes. There's a process to forgetting the gospel. You, know, you want to know how to forget the gospel? Let me tell you how to do it. There's a, there's a four-step process to forgetting the gospel. Step one, assume it. Don't talk about it. Just assume it. We all know the gospel. Well, we're all Christians here. You know it. I know it. We don't have to say it over and over. We know what it is. You know. is. Mean, we're all Christians, right? We're all evangelicals. We all believe the gospel. Sure. So we, we don't need to rehearse the gospel. We just need to assume that we all know it. That's the first step. Because once you assume it, the second step happens, which is we begin to minimize it. It becomes smaller and smaller in terms of our thinking and our awareness. The gospel is reduced perhaps just to, this is how you become a Christian. All right, someone's not a Christian, what do I do? Oh, I told them that gospel message. Then they become a Christian. Okay, great, the gospel, we did that. Now let's go on to other things as if the gospel was just the doorway into the Christian faith, rather than what it really is, which is the DNA of the entire Christian life. The whole structure of Jesus' gospel is the whole structure of the Christian experience. And It's how I relate to other Christians. It's how the church should be structured. It's how I should relate in a marriage relationship. Everything is built on the gospel. And and once I've just assumed it, and once the gospel then shrinks and I've minimized it, then the next step, step three, is then I begin to add to the gospel. Because you've got to add something now that it's so small. There's got to be something else to take its place. The vacuum is there and something comes in. And so it becomes the gospel and something else. Right? And that and can be anything. The gospel and my philosophy. The gospel and my theories. The gospel and my... Church rituals and traditions, the gospel and my politics, the gospel and my patriotism, the gospel and uh, social action, caring for those in need, whatever it is, it, it, sometimes they're really good things. We add them in, but I'll tell you, they tend to be things that are not scandalous to the world. The gospel is a scandal. You know, helping people in need is not a scandal. It's a good thing, and we should do it, but it's not the gospel. And once you've assumed the gospel and once we minimize the gospel and then once we add to the gospel, then the last step, of course, is a a wholesale replacement of the gospel. And now we don't have it anymore because something else has completely taken its place. And so now, you know, I, I mean... I'll just talk about being sinners in need of salvation. I mean, that's a little strong. What we really need is 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 role models because we're all we're all good. We're on a good path, and so we don't need Jesus as savior. We need Jesus as a role model. And and this whole idea that Jesus was crucified for our sins. I mean, isn't that barbaric? Isn't that kind of like child abuse? I mean, with all the abuse and violence in the world today, how can we talk about the blood shed on the cross and Jesus rising from the dead? I mean, isn't that isn't that really a metaphor for, for just the kind of spiritual retransformation we all need to experience on a regular basis? And then you're into a different... Now, it's not the gospel anymore. It's something else. And, and you just kind of get there. So, so rather than replacing the gospel with all that and more, and let's make sure that we don't do that. Let's make sure we don't add to it. Let's make sure we don't minimize it. And let's start by not assuming it. Let's tell the story. I love to tell the story. We've got to tell it again and again, even though it's basic. And and, and we do other things in the church besides tell the story, but it's the heart of what we do. It's the gospel story. And so when we gather here for worship on Sunday mornings, our primary mission on Sunday mornings is to glorify God and worship him. But what do we glorify him in light of? It's in light of the gospel, what he's done for us. And so we need to make sure that our gatherings here on Sunday morning are gospel-soaked. If we sing songs on Sunday morning and at the end of the service we've sang five, six songs and none of them talked about the cross, we've begun to assume the gospel rather than tell the story. One of my personal goals as a preacher is to make sure that in every sermon, whatever the topic is, whatever the text is, I find some way to show how the text relates to the gospel. I can't say that I have always succeeded in that, but that's my ideal you know, the Apostle Paul described his own preaching. He summarized his whole preaching this way. We preach Christ crucified. And I know he preached about more things than just the cross every time, but he showed how it all related to the gospel message. Uh, we gather on Sunday morning. Why do we gather on Sunday? It's when Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week. We, we, we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper because Jesus told us to. Why? Because they are memorials of the gospel. And so we need to be a gospel-soaked church. And frankly, I still need the gospel. (laughs) Even though I've been a Christian for a couple decades, I still need the gospel. I've been a Christian long enough now to really shudder at verse 25. Verse 25 makes my blood run cold. If we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as He commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Oh, please tell me that's not how it works. If my righteousness, if my acceptability with God is based upon my ability to keep all this law, I'm sunk before I even started. I put my boat in the water and it goes down to the bottom. I I can't even get to the start line of the race. Israel couldn't keep the law. How can a a dirty Gentile like me keep the law? I can't keep it. I know I can't. If if my Christianity is based upon keeping God's laws and and surrounding my life with His Word and doing it perfectly, I, I know I can't do that. I need the Gospel. I need the message that God has provided a righteousness that I cannot provide for myself. I need the message that God sent Jesus who did keep the law, who did obey God's law perfectly, who always loved the Lord with all his heart, who always kept God front and center, Jesus who then died on the cross so that in this great exchange my unfaithfulness would be credited to him on the cross where he bore it and his righteousness would be credited to me. I can't imagine getting out of bed every day thinking that my future with God was dependent upon my daily performance as a Christian. I'm sunk. If it's possible to lose my salvation based upon my performance, I'm done. What great news this is, that God has provided a righteousness foreign to me, that He gives to me so that when I get up in the morning and put my clothes on and I go out into God's world to face God's reality, I know that I am His accepted forever beloved Son because the righteousness of Jesus already clothes me. How I need the Gospel. How we need the Gospel to live the Christian life in a joyful and peaceful and triumphant way. Some of you have heard of uh, John Newton. He was an Englishman, 18th century Englishman. He's the guy who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, that one of the most famous hymns of all time. And uh, some of you may know John Newton was a pastor. He was a songwriter. Uh, but you may know what John Newton did before he was a pastor. He had another job before that. He was a slave trader. Uh, and he was a, a sailor and pretty much a degenerate reprobate is well, how you could describe him. Just a, a very bad person. But God reached him during a storm one night at sea. He became convicted of all of his sin, and, and he eventually turned his life over to Christ and became a believer. And after that, he became a pastor and wrote Amazing Grace, really the story of his life. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, he really meant that because he was a wretch. And and he, he realized what God's grace had done. So he was a pastor until about age 80. And then from age 80 to 82, he fell into really poor health, and so he couldn't be a pastor anymore. And uh, he just didn't have the physical capacity to pastor in those last two years. And during those last two years, John Newton said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner And that Christ is a great Savior.